Welcome to Old Fashioned Finance, the podcast that mixes cocktails and high finance. I'm your host, Jason Demland, and I am joined as always and in the future by my good friend and fellow money muddler, Caleb Frankert. Jason, can a podcast about finance be entertaining? Not without alcohol. Well, all right, let's mix it up. Well, good afternoon, Jason, and isn't it a beautiful afternoon? (laughs) Well, isn't it always... Isn't it always? Hey, when you're recording a podcast with your best bud, it is. Yep. Yeah, actually, I really look forward to doing this. It is a highlight of my week. I have to say, honestly, this brings me so much joy. I've decided we probably both need to do a little bit better job of just enjoying things, don't you? Yeah, it's definitely something to work towards. We should enjoy our lives. We should enjoy uh, our hobbies. We should enjoy our families, our jobs. Enjoy. 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 Uh, speaking of enjoying our families, I so I took a little little time off last week. Oh, yeah, good, um, good job. Yeah, which is something yes. I'm not really good at. I, I mean it. We need to get better at enjoying things. So I'm mm-hmm. usually not very good at vacation, as you know. But I took a little little bit of time, a couple days, and we did take a little day trip actually to Easton and got to check out the Legoland Discovery Center with the kiddos, which was an absolute blast. Honestly, I, I think I might have enjoyed it just as much as the kids. But then we, while we were down there, we checked out the American Girl store. So we got to take Olivia there. It was the first time she's ever been there. And man, she was in heaven. It was good times. It sounds pricey, but Legos, man. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So we, is it just a smaller version of like the big Lego land or is I, it? Well, I haven't been to the big Lego land, but kind of. They had uh, two or three rides. They had a 4D theater, which is cool. I don't want to spoil it for everybody, but the fourth dimension is water. It's water. You'll get wet. But it was tons of fun. So I you thought go the fourth dimension your... was time. Not in the Legoland theater. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Titus is a big Ninjago fan, and they had a, a Ninjago movie, a little like 15 minutes. But it was really cool because when they're fighting and stuff like that, anytime water would, uh, you know, one, one of them, their power is water or something like that. And then you get splashed. And you're like, well, where did that come from? Oh, nice. And then you get up and you're like, oh, I should have. I should have saw this coming because the floor is wet when I walked in. <laughs> Why are there drains? I just assume kids, you know, kids, maybe a kid had an accident or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> of course. But. That's what you assumed as a father. <laughs> <laughs> but it was lots of fun. Um, you know, we went to Lego. And uh, by the way, that Lego store is the coolest Lego store. They have all the stuff. Yeah. Um, so between that and uh, American Girl, we dropped a little bit of cabbage, but man, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. The kids had a blast, had a good time spoiling them a little bit. Awesome. So. That's good to get some time out of the office. I too enjoy when you take time off. <laughs> <laughs> the office was quiet. I didn't have you to distract me with our shenanigans. We had a good time here too. <laughs> I bet you got a lot done. Yeah, you know, not as much as I probably should have, but it was nice nonetheless. The highlight of my week actually was not your absence. It was some packages that I received in the mail. Ooh. The the Amazon deliveries continue to flow during these COVID times, but flowing a little bit quicker now. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as it's UPS and not post office. But yeah, mm. I got I got some books about cocktails that I'm really excited about. One one's called Imbibe. I can't remember. Woodrich is the author. That one's oh, going to be awesome. Cool. I got a Savoy uh, cocktail book about with just recipes. I'm really excited about those. Some coupe glasses, finally, so I can start drinking some classy drinks like the Martini and the Manhattan in style. And a coupe glass, if you don't know, is just the picture Leonardo DiCaprio in The Great Gatsby <laughs> and those memes where he's holding the glass up, giving that that look. You know? Yeah. 
That's mm. a coupe glass. Uh, so there's you sweet. will look as cool as Leo if you're holding a coupe glass. I feel like I am as <laughs> handsome as Leo when I hold that glass, and my wife agrees. I'm sure. So uh, yeah. that that was pretty cool. Uh, it's just making me feel classy. I like getting packages in the mail, man. It's nice. Yeah. I got some packages too, but I, I almost left out. You know, it wasn't all just fun for the kids uh, at Easton. I always make sure to check out. I got 10 minutes at the Tenderbox. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Tenderbox, but it's one of the few. I don't know. It might be the only these days. It's one of the few or only chain retailers uh, that specializes in pipes, tobacco, cigars, that kind of stuff. But I like to stop in there when I go down because I always find something a little bit off the radar, maybe something mm-hmm. that's uh, kind of dusty. It's been around for a while. So I did stop in there. I got my 10 minutes and uh, I am now the proud owner of a 10 of Comoy's cask number seven pipe tobacco. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've been eager to try it. And the thing is, now that I finally got a 10, I found out that it's discontinued. I'm pretty sure you can't get it anymore. So my luck is I'll probably love it. And I'll never be able to find it again. <laughs> <laughs> right. It'll go out like like Frog Morton Cellar. Just oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if that's the case, I did get a shipment from uh, Country Squire also. So I'm oh, sure that, uh, yeah. I also received some pipe tobaccos last week with my packages that I got. What did yeah. you get? You're familiar with Country Squire. They do the Middle Earth series, which is basically, you know, if... There, there's pipe smoking in, in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings. It's basically like, what would they smoke, right? And so I think there's six, and I've tried three. So I ordered the other three that I hadn't tried yet. King's Foil, Rivendell, and Second Breakfast. Man, all I'm going to say is JD is a master blender. They are exceptional. What did you get anyway <laughs> with, with uh, your package? I didn't get anything from the Country Squire. But talking about them, I can't recommend them enough uh, as a, mm-hmm. an establishment. You can order online from them. JD from the Country Squire does a podcast. Actually, he's yes. a tobacconist, and he does a podcast with Bo, who's the reason this podcast sounds even halfway decent. <laughs> uh, and that is uh, you and I's favorite podcast. We should probably yeah. plug that. It absolutely is. It's so good. And I always look forward to Wednesdays. That's when their new episodes mm-hmm. come out. It's like catching up with friends. It's like, I feel like Bo and JD are my buddies, and I haven't talked to them in a whole week. Um, <laughs> so it's Country Squire Radio. If you're looking for a pipe smoking podcast, you might not find it. Um, but it's Country Squire Radio. Check it out, folks. Uh, even if you're not interested in pipes or pipe tobacco or anything like that, they're just a couple of good dudes that are having fun putting out a really just fun podcast. My wife enjoys it, and she couldn't care less about pipe tobacco. In my book, just good quality programming. Yeah, we were just talking about increasing our joy or enjoying life more. And tobacco definitely helps with that. Uh, yeah. But so does listening to that that podcast. Country Squire Radio is, is a show that does that for me. The pipe tobaccos that I got, they were some same Samuel Gaywith blends that oh, uh, yeah. I'm excited to try out that you I've never had before. Them, They're huh? usually pretty hard to get too. So those are They're the blends always... that I got. So I'm excited about trying those yummy, yummy tobaccos. Yeah, sounds delicious. Oh, you yeah. know what else sounds delicious or is delicious? Tell me. Today's cocktail, the Jack Rose. Caleb, Jack Rose, aren't those the names of the main characters of James Cameron's smash hit 1997 release, Titanic? Indeed they are. And wow, (laughs) 1997, I feel old. Man, I remember when that first came out in theaters uh, and everyone, (laughs) I mean, everyone had to go see it. So I was 12 years old, and uh, like so many 12-year-olds, I went with my parents. (laughs) 
which was awkward for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a very uh, there's an artistic scene in that movie. Yeah, uh, that, that's that one way made to it put really it. awkward. <laughs> it's art. Well, did you see it with your parents too? Yeah, man. Didn't everyone? It, it was a family <laughs> movie. It was it was a historic movie, big budget blockbuster, um, detailing a, a tragic historic event. Everybody saw it with their families. <laughs> yeah, we were the absolute worst age for that movie to come out and go see with your parents. Um, my brother, who's five years younger, was with us, but poor kid, he had no idea what was going on. <laughs> oh, yep. <laughs> Just yep. Yep. Just yep. Good movie, though. <laughs> even though Jack died. <laughs> even though Jack died unnecessarily. It was a good movie. Yeah, it, it was a really good movie. Um, and what made the whole story so tragic, which I'm sure everybody knows this, but the Titanic was that supposedly unsinkable ship. However, we know ultimately that wasn't the case. Yes, there are lots of unseen dangers in life that could kill you out of nowhere. Even when you think you're not going to freeze to death in the Atlantic Ocean, sometimes it happens. So true. <laughs> uh, many icebergs in the night uh, could sink your unsinkable financial plan, if you will. Uh, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, in the Titanic's case, there was not enough lifeboats. So today we are going to talk about the many dangers lurking beneath the dark waters of your financial voyage and how to prepare best. Because what if something tragic happened and maybe there wasn't enough room on the door for two? <laughs> <laughs> there was plenty of room. She there let him was. freeze to death. <laughs> yeah, <sighs> man, that's why we're talking about risk management today. Uh, to pair with the Jack Rose, or or specifically insurance, <laughs> when you need it, why you need it, what types of it you should use for life, health, disability, and more. I think this is going to be a really fun one. Before we get into all that, though, uh, let's uh, do a little bit more on the Jack Rose because I know very little about this drink. So tell me, tell me what it is I'm drinking here, Jason. Yeah, Caleb, a lot of people don't know much about the Jack Rose. It is... Uh, <laughs> Not as popular as its counterpart cocktails uh, from back in the day, from pre-prohibition. So hopefully Mm -hmm. we can remedy that a little bit today. But for me to talk about the Jack Rose, first I have to talk about Applejack. Oh, I'm excited about this. Applejack's was one of my all-time favorite cereals, and making a drink out of it makes me giddy. (laughs) Caleb, grow up, man. That sounds fun. (laughs) No, Applejack's are awesome. And that sounds fun, but would probably be illegal. Uh, If you can't flavor cigarettes, there's no way you can have Applejack's liquor. Uh, (laughs) You can't have a Saturday morning cartoon uh, liquor commercial, but you can have Applejack. That's true. So, so wait, you're telling me this has nothing to do with the famous breakfast cereal, nothing to do with Saturday morning cartoons. What came first, the cereal or the drink? The drink has more to do with George Washington than it does with Thundercats. (laughs) <laughs> Applejack was around long before Kellogg invented breakfast cereal. Way before. You're trying, uh, you're trying not to picture eight-year-old me in my Thundy undies eating cereal in front of the television, aren't you? Thundercats, ho! <laughs> no, man, it's not a good image. <laughs> Here's the deal with Applejack, Caleb. Uh, okay. Applejack is, is, an, is an old spirit. It's very American in origin. Actually, it, it's uh, a primary name that it had was Jersey Lightning. So Applejack oh, is the main ingredient cool. in the Jack Rose. Maybe it's where the Jack and Jack Rose comes from. I don't know. 
But mm-hmm. while I'm at it, here are some other cool nicknames. I love this, like old-timey speak for stuff. This has cool nicknames, yeah. Applejack, as the spirit does. So it's Jersey Lightning, who was the most popular one besides Applejack. Corpse Reviver. Essence of Lockjaw. <laughs> Slug of Bluefish Quills. <laughs> I don't, what? What? And, uh, and Horn of Gunpowder. <laughs> Those are cool names, wow. right? Uh, they are so cool names. The, basically, the name Applejack. What, what was the first one? Jer- Jersey Thunder. Jersey Lightning. What was it? Jersey Lightning. Jersey Lightning. Jersey that Lightning. Like, uh, that sounds like that sounds like a basketball player nickname or something like that. Uh, or somebody. It should be. When I make it to New the Jersey. NBA, they'll call me yeah. Jersey Lightning. Well, you're not from <laughs> Jersey, man. <laughs> well, I'll be wearing a jersey. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. I'm and sorry. That makes as much sense as anything else. <laughs> anyway, but no, uh, Applejack got its name probably from the process that's used to distill it called jacking. Yes. Jacking. <laughs> okay. Uh, but Explain. yeah, it's pretty cool. Here, here it is. So basically they took hard cider and you freeze it. Mm-hmm. So if you, and you, when you freeze alcohol, the water freezes and you got some more potent stuff left over. So they'd freeze the hard cider, yeah. pour off the non-frozen part and repeat until you had a nice distilled drink. That made it, hmm. I mean, it's rougher than what we have now in it, in the form of Applejack is distilled like the proper way that makes sure there's no like methanol or things that will kill you or turn mm. you blind. But back then they would do it this way. It was it was a pretty good way to get things done. I, I've heard of people still doing this now to kind of circumvent distilling laws. That's probably still illegal. I don't know. I, I can't recommend that. But that's how they did this back in the day. It's an, it's an apple-based spirit. It's It's made from apples made from apple cider and then they they did it this way with by using a jacking technique so but applejack is essentially just apple brandy so you distill down a fruit like, like apples you can you end up with brandy um mm-hmm. brandy is typically grapes but uh apple brandy is apple so it's an apple spirit it dates back to the foundings of the united states colonial really? times and, and before Laird's is one of the big time distillers of Applejack. They're really the the main one left that still makes Applejack as a spirit. So they're synonymous with Applejack. Laird's distillery has been around for quite a while. And George Washington visited the distillery, asked them for their recipe, and considered converting his Mount Vernon orchards to apples so that he could make Applejack too. Oh, the guy wow. loved it so much. Rumors have it that he he gave rations of Applejack to uh, to uh, infantry units. So it's pretty it's pretty cool history that Applejack existed. Huh. Um, it went out of style. I, Prohibition kind of butchered it, but it mostly went out of style. Man, when it grain, messed everything up, right? It ruined everything. But uh, <laughs> grain spirits were easier and less costly to distill, so it started to lose some popularity uh-huh. there. But the Laird family still run their distillery. Lisa Laird on Laird's website actually made mention of this. And this dates back to our first episode about old fashions. She thinks Applejack and her great, great something or other invented the old fashioned. <laughs> she thinks the Apple, oh. Applejack was the first liquor in an old, in an old fashioned. It all no cropped kidding. up. Th- and she says it's named. They had racehorses back then. And her great, great granddaddy was a jockey. That could her be her great granddaddy or grand grandpappy. Uh, I don't know. It was many generations, seven or eight generations before. I don't know how many grands that is. Or I didn't pay that much attention to that. But basically, the name of a racehorse was Fashion. And then they started breeding that horse and they referred to it as Old Fashion. So she says that that's maybe that's her addition. But conveniently or inconveniently, all the records were destroyed in a fire in the 1800s, as was the custom <laughs> at the time. 
So that's kind of like uh, all the courthouses, right? Like, uh, oh, you yep. know, my house it says 1900 because the courthouse burned down in 1900. Did every courthouse burn down in 1900? <laughs> You know, what you said about uh, maybe the original Old Fashioned was made with Applejack. We did an episode on Old Fashions, the first one. Um, and, you know, we that's one of our favorites. So we've done a lot of um, Old Fashioned recipes. I've never heard that. But I think that uh, I read something. Well, no, maybe it was gin. But I thought I thought brandy was maybe one of the original Old Fashions. And that would make sense. We've had apple brandy. Um, maybe they were referring mm-hmm. to Applejack. I, I don't know. Yeah, uh, those Wisconsinites, Wisconsinians, Wisconians, <laughs> people from Wisconsin, they did a lot of brandy old fashions. I haven't tried yes, it with Applejack. We're probably going to have to do that. Yeah, we'll but have to do that. More about Applejack. The Applejack that we're using in our Jack Rose cocktail is a blended Applejack. So 20% apple brandy, 80% grain spirits. Laird still makes a straight apple brandy. It's just like I said earlier, it went out of style. The straight apple brandy <laughs> did when green spirits got more popular. So there's there's debate. Some some old timers probably like the straight apple brandy better. Uh, I don't know, but that leads I thought in it was well. Too sweet. What we had before, just, oh, just when we just apple used brandy? straight apple brandy. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I don't know if that was that high quality of apple brandy either, but well, that's, it, t- it tasted a lot sweeter than this. This cocktail is. Uh, a Jack Rose that we're using Applejack in. It's the primary ingredient. I don't know. Are you? Do you have the recipe to give, or am I giving the recipe? I guess I kind of thought, like we typically do, we would consult our old pal Dave Embry. He's become such a good friend over these last four episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as we have read his recipes. Yeah, I'll give I'll give his recipe because it's actually the best one that I have drank. So I think uh, is that pre- what we have now? That's what we're drinking right now. So raise your Jack okay, Rose. Okay. Uh, and, uh, what's left of it at least <laughs> I was talking for a long time. You had a chance to drink the, the Jack Rose <laughs> is made of three simple ingredients. It is apple Jack, lemon juice or lime juice and grenadine. You shake it in a shaker okay. uh, with some ice, get it real cold, put it into a cocktail glass. You can garnish it with a twist of lemon. If you want, the proportions are two ounces of apple Jack, a half ounce of lemon juice and a quarter of an ounce of grenadine. So in those proportions, you can mix it up. That's David Embry's recipe. Uh, he mm-hmm. prefers the lemon juice and a little bit more Applejack in his ratio than some other recipes that I saw. Some people really like the lime. They think it brings out the apple more. We had a lime version of it. I thought it was it was yeah. a lot sweeter when you cut back on the Applejack and increase the lime juice. Boy, that's really sweet. So you thought it... You thought it was sweeter, and when I had it, I thought kind of, like I actually I thought my wife would really enjoy it. She likes sour candy and stuff, and it kind of I thought it was really sour. Um, it was like I don't know, it was kind of like sour Kool Aid. It was almost like like you threw a sour patch in with some alcohol. I, I mean, it was yeah. it was tasty. It's not totally my style, but just going from the lime juice to the lemon. It makes a huge difference. And it, obviously adding a little bit more Applejack makes a difference. I like David Embry's recipe, but I could see why the lime, you know, if you if you kind of gravitate towards more of the, the sour, why you would really like that. They're both pretty good. Yeah, actually, I think out of this recipe is where like whiskey sour and all the sours kind of originate. Oh, uh, so that, that makes, makes a lot sense. of sense. Yeah, I said it was sweeter. It was it was really it was really sweet, but it was. There was a lot of tang in there. That that lemon yeah. with the the applejack really, really was like a sour patch kid. You're right. It was it was kind of the, like the lime, the lime with the uh, yeah. applejack. Yeah, the yeah. lime. I'm sorry, yeah. with the lime with that. Yeah, you had definitely had some overtones of 
Sour Patch Kids or Sour Candy. But well, yeah, what, so what like, do you think in general of these Apple Jacks? I mean, we've we've uh, we've done a few episodes, a few different drinks. Where's this stacking up for you? I just think it's unfairly overlooked as yeah. a cocktail. Like I have, I had never heard of it before we started doing research for this podcast. I, I didn't mm-hmm. even know it existed. I didn't know Applejack existed either. And I, I would assume a lot of listeners are probably realizing that for the first time too. But the Jack Rose. Yeah. Let me go into maybe theories why it fell out of popularity because I like it quite a bit. It doesn't have the tropical feel that mm-hmm. a daiquiri has. It doesn't have the the fruitiness of a margarita. It's closer probably to, I wanted to say to a Manhattan but or an old fashioned. It's just mm. got that sour in there though. So it's, it's yeah. I guess it's probably more similar to a daiquiri in a lot of ways. It just doesn't it just doesn't have the same tropical feel to it. It's a lot more sour. Um yeah. it ranks up there really high for me, man. I I like it. Okay. I like it. I agree with you. Like uh like you said, I didn't I really didn't know it existed. I thought it was, you know, when we looked at David Embry's fine art of mixing drinks and the six essential cocktails, I went, how is this essential if I've never heard of it? And what's funny is the first thing I thought with a Jack Rose is, well, that sounds like Titanic, <laughs> which obviously plays into our finance topic. You know, somehow yeah. we we work that in. I like it. I really like the old fashions. I really like martinis. Um, and I, I think that I would give the daiquiri a slight edge to the Jack Rose, although the Apple Jack is really interesting. It's a nice change I, of pace. I want to try some more drinks with Apple Jack. I think I, that's just yeah. an interesting tasting liquor. I maybe highly recommend we need it. to. Yeah, maybe we need to try the the uh, old fashioned with Apple Jack and report back. I'll we'll definitely be trying that <laughs> definitely. But yeah, man, I think that the Jack Rose kind of got a raw deal. And listen to this. It seems like so cocktails were pretty popular around the turn of the century in 1900 or so. And the Jack Rose was a pretty popular drink back then. Applejack was was distilling a lot. Uh, or Laird's was distilling mm-hmm. a lot of Applejack. A lot of other distilleries were. But there are rumors that a notorious underworld figure, Baldy Jack Rose, uh, ruined the popularity of the drink. <laughs> he was involved in like a crime of the century. Uh, I didn't dig into the details, but there were some executions out of it, and everybody seemed to know about oh. it, which really took the panache off of ordering a Jack Rose. It was, you know, it's like I don't, well, I don't know any analogies for it, but it's like it just going, made it not going cool. into uh, Bob Evans and ordering an OJ. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that was the crime of our century. I don't know what yeah. century are we talking about here. <laughs> well, this is the 1900s, man. So that probably oh. ruined the popularity of the drink. It even prompted some bartenders to try to rename it. So there's a bunch of different names out there for the same beverage. Mm-hmm. But the Jack Rose was probably invented by an award-winning mixologist named Joseph P. Rose, which is funny because I just thought Rose is grenadine. Rose makes grenadine. That's one of the ingredients. It's probably apple jack and grenadine. No, probably this Joseph Rose guy. I think the Jack Rose ultimately is a cocktail. It's worth trying if you haven't had it. David Embry puts it as one of the six essential cocktails. It's it's a base for making other ones. It's yeah. a good drink. And I am shocked that I have not heard of it until we started yeah. doing research for this podcast. And I bet if you asked a bartender around you to make you one, they might not know what it is unless you're at a really high-end cocktail bar. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you talked about Joseph Rose. Obviously, they made it with Applejack, so maybe that's where Jack came in. But it's kind of funny that Jack was a nickname back in the day for anybody with a J name. <laughs> it John, makes no sense. Joe. I don't understand. Everybody it. was Jack. 
Even Clive Staples Lewis was Jack. I think <laughs> everybody was Jack back in the day. You know what? I can't complain. Nick, they were so much better at nicknaming things back then. Well, Did you see true. the names for Applejack? Jersey Lightning, Corpse Reviver, yeah. Essence of Lockjaw. When we did that old-timey reading of uh, the first introduction of Cocktail, all the different names for cocktails, Bitter Sling. Like, we don't talk like that anymore. We don't nickname no. stuff. Is it because we're lazy? Because you'd think that nicknaming every single name Jack is lazy. <laughs> but they were much better nicknamers back in the day. I, I've always kind of wanted a nickname. Nothing sticks. I guess you could try Jack. We'll see how that works. I'd be okay. I'll call. With that. I'll call you Jack. All, All right, right, Jack. Okay, let's Jack. move on. <laughs> so uh, yeah, not to kill all the Jack Rose fun. Why don't we get into the finance topic a little bit here? Um, we're yeah. going to talk about the the icebergs, right? That could be lurking out in the dark waters of the Atlantic, just ready to sink your unsinkable Titanic of a financial plan. So, Jason, um, yes, sir, man. Why don't we get into maybe the the number one thing that everybody ought to think about when we talk risk management? Yeah, risk management is a fancy term for what could wreck your plans. Let's try to 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 balance some of these risks out. The number one risk, Caleb, is you die. If you yeah, die, that can one. really wreck your financial plans. Uh, so we got to think about that. The main people this affects, uh, and how I like to put it with clients, is is really death affects your financial plan if you have anyone at all out there that may be dependent on your income or you for support. So. Yeah. You know, a spouse. That, that's a good way to put it. I always used to say um, when clients would ask me about life insurance, I'd say, well, look, uh, if you and maybe this is a, an old I, I'm, I certainly didn't coin this. But, you know, if you love someone or you owe someone or both, you should probably have life insurance. Yeah. I mean, think about you are uh, let's just say it's someone roughly uh, like us. So somebody in their mid to late 30s. They uh, and their spouse are both working. You got a couple of kids or so and you got a mortgage and you're saving for Mm -hmm. retirement. But boy, if you die, that's really going to be tough. Even worse, like my wife stays home and homeschools our kids. If she were to die, like the the value finance, it's hard to put a value on someone's actual life, though. Life insurance companies have ways to do it. Um, Oh, yeah. But just think have of you ever talked cost. to an actuarial jason they they yes, can I put have. a value on your life in no time yeah i got i got a friend who is one he's he's a nice guy <laughs> he's really nice you'd wouldn't you wouldn't think that he was an actuary but uh those guys are <laughs> robots that calculate the dollar value of almost everything and they're super yeah. good at math but uh they you are. just think in practical terms of of a wife staying at home taking care of the kids teaching the kids taking care of your house filling how many role how many roles does a mother fill we've talked that there's been studies on the value of a mom like how, how much it would cost to replace mm-hmm. and it's hundreds of thousands of dollars over their lifetime millions of dollars over their lifetime maybe $100,000 $200,000 a year so that's just one small example I was going to say, let's dig into that a little bit. So you are mid thirties um, and you're working. Your wife is obviously, she's working too. She's working at home, taking care of five kids and two cats as of now, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, now. So if something, you know, I think a lot of people just initially go, well, if something happened to me and I'm the breadwinner, well, my wife's got to figure out a way to, you know, come up with some income. So what does she do? What, what are her options if you have no life insurance? Well, she's got to go back to work 
And what I mean by that is get back out into the workforce, which is not the easiest thing to do with five young children. You know, so I think we think about that a lot. A life insurance for the breadwinner. What about if something happened to your wife right now? Jason, are you bringing your five kids? That'd be far worse financially. Yeah, I, I yeah, just, just trying to value what she does. Like, do I have to get a nanny and a tutor and a house cleaner and a somebody to remind me of all the things that I forget? And, <laughs> and it's just, so much it's, more. It's it would be so costly. So yeah, we should insure her life for quite a bit. Um, so I think that basically it's easy to say as if anybody is dependent on your income or your money you need life insurance. So the list for who doesn't need life insurance is probably a shorter list. Let's mm-hmm. let's attack that. Caleb, tell me somebody that does not need any form of life insurance. Yeah, so a lot of times I think that what we you know, when when we're talking about who needs life insurance, who doesn't. A lot of times we think, well, okay, if I've got a mortgage to pay for, uh, if I've got, you know, loans and all that kind of stuff, I I you know, at least want to make sure that if I pass away all of our debts are paid. But, you know, you look at somebody who's done the debt-free scream and they're in their mid-30s, congratulations, but you probably still need life insurance because, again, we're talking about income replacement as well. One of the things that, you know, we're probably not even thinking about off, off the top that's really important is depending on the age of your kids, and we talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but you, you might want to consider college planning and things like that too. Now, that's each to his own. You might have a college plan. Hopefully, uh, you do. Um, you know, maybe the podcast from last week informs that a little bit. I don't know. But there's a lot of factors involved. So just because you don't have debt doesn't mean aren't, you're not going to have to replace a salary, you know, for 10, 15, 20 years. Who knows? Mm-hmm. There are some rules of thumb, too. And, and we can get into that in a bit. But so who who doesn't need life insurance? Well, when I review clients portfolios, and we're looking at insurance and all that kind of stuff, typically where I might say, hey, you know, we probably don't need this anymore. It would be somebody who's fully retired and maybe they've got, you know, social security or a good pension and, you know, the spouse has a good uh, beneficiary option set up. That's really important. Man, we could really go down a rabbit trail with, um, you know, even social security and things like that. Maybe you just got social security. Mm-hmm. You still might want life insurance. But, you know, for someone who's got a pension and their their spouse is the beneficiary, uh, they don't owe anybody. Nobody's really relying on that income anymore. Uh, maybe then. But I would say far more need it than don't. I think the rule of thumb is probably 10 to 12 times your annual salary is, is a good a, a good starting point, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. I'd say that's a good rule of thumb for what kind of death benefit you should be getting. Um, if, you're, if you're in your accumulating years, like if you've got a while to work yet, um, 10 to 12 times your income is a really good starting spot. And that puts most people around, mm-hmm. you know, 500000 to $1.5 million dollars of life insurance. And yeah, that's a really good place to start because you've got just those years of your earnings to get rid of. And if you have a spouse, like if you're a one income family, usually I just do the same for both of them as just a rule of thumb recommendation. So I'm sorry to interject. Would you, are you saying that you would recommend, so 10 times in your situation, mm-hmm. 10 times your earnings and then mm-hmm. that number also for your wife? Yeah. Uh, actually, with my wife, we've okay. done more of a of a, a human value life our approach to trying okay. to just put a dollar amount on all the things that I would have to replace if mm-hmm. she was gone. So it works out to a different number, but it's close enough if you just do 10 times your income 
times two for both of you. Uh, now that's all different. And if you talk to a good financial planner, they can help you calculate that stuff based on your yeah. your personal situation. But if you're going just rule of thumb, if you have 10 to 12 times your income and in insurance, you're doing about the right thing, I think. The purpose for this is not to you know get 500000 or a million dollars to put in the savings account and take care of bills and things like that. What that does is it really gives you know a surviving spouse a good base to invest and generate income for the, the for the foreseeable future, right? So when we talk about those numbers and we're trying to calculate and figure out how much we need, I think that's another thing you got to look at is how much income can you can you drive off of that face value? That that can help you as well. It, it might not be as cut and dry as 10 to 12 times your salary. You might be able yeah. to back into the number based off of, okay, well, how much income would I need to keep this household running? You know, you got to think about it this way. That money is not necessarily there to go into savings and make you feel warm and fuzzy. That's there to work for you and generate income because that's exactly what it's replacing is income. Yeah, well, and it could be if that's the way that you figured it up. So yeah, an income replacement approach is another okay way to figure up life insurance. And that's where you usually end up with with the 10 to 12 times Mm -hmm. your income. That's why you're doing that. It's a rule of thumb for a reason. It's the reason that Papa Bear Dave Ramsey recommends it. Just hope of personal finance. That's right. It just makes sense. (laughs) It's a good number to have. It might not be specifically necessary for you and your situation, um, but it's nice to have. Yeah, Caleb, the only people that I can think of that don't need a policy are people that have nobody depending on them. If you are completely single and you have no kids... You might not need life insurance. Now, if you have some debts, uh-huh. you might think about getting it too, because who's who's probably going to take care of stuff if you're gone or your next of kin? It might be your parents or a sibling, and you might want to just make sure it's not a burden to them when you die. So they might still need life insurance. So really, the only person, like you said, is somebody that's completely financially independent. They don't need to work anymore. Mm-hmm. They've got a bunch of money already. You're self-insured. If you die and you've got $8 million yeah. of net worth, why do you need life insurance unless you want to just bonus out some people with, with, with a tax-advantaged gift? And that's, that's certainly a reason to maybe consider having life insurance when you don't need it. But it, it all depends on your health and how expensive the life ins- insurance is too. There's so many different kinds of life insurance out there. Oh, and people get confused yeah. and bored and they just end up trusting somebody to, to kind of guide them. So when somebody's looking for life insurance, what kind should they get? Yeah, I mean, you hear things like whole life insurance, term life insurance, universal life insurance, variable universal life insurance, flexible premium, all kinds of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. We want to be 100% clear on this. I recommend one kind of life insurance and that's term life insurance. Okay, there's a few reasons for that. Term insurance is not permanent insurance. You're setting up a life insurance death benefit for a certain period of time. So, you know, to break this down kind of simply, let's say that you've got 15 years left on your mortgage and you've got roughly 15 years left of of work. Uh, You might look at a 15 year term policy. It's much cheaper because it's not permanent. When that 15 year term is up, you have nothing. Okay. A lot of folks don't like the idea that, well, I'm going to pay money into this and then I have nothing. Does that sound familiar? Well, what do you get out of your auto insurance if you don't use it? What do you get out of your homeowner's insurance if you don't use it? Nothing. So Mm -hmm. I I think that that's why a lot of people end up, they they find themselves sold into something else that they don't necessarily need a whole life policy because it's quote unquote permanent. It's an investment. Uh, It's pitched as as something other than Ah. what it's there for. A, a tax-free income source in retirement, all those kinds of things. But I, I like to keep it so very simple. 
what is life insurance? It's a transfer of risk that you're not going to be around generating the income that your family needs. It's a commodity. Term insurance is the cheapest thing around. It's going to get you the most bang for your buck. If you're really looking for something that's more geared towards a long-term investment or something to generate uh, income for yourself, uh, there are better avenues uh, because yes, there is there a are. cost to life insurance. <laughs> and we, I think we kind of touched on it maybe in the last podcast and one of the questions that we had. There's always that premium to owning life insurance. There's the cost of insurance. And if you're doing it for investments or you're doing it for anything other than insuring your stream of income, I'm just not a fan of it. It's a commodity. Get the cheapest coverage possible. And here's the other thing. If you set up a 15-year term and you become financially independent in the meantime, great. You stop paying premiums. You don't have coverage. You're not throwing any more money at it. But I I try to tell people it's insurance. It's transfer of risk. Think about your auto uh, insurance. Think about your homeowner's insurance. Those are things that you hope you're throwing money at and you're not collecting on. Same thing as life insurance. Don't get too fancy with it. It's really expensive and it's not generally uh, the best way to go about investing or creating tax-free income. There's, there's better ways to do that. Wow, I talked a lot about that. I'm Man, sorry. I must feel strongly. If you're watching this, I, I'm sitting on my hands. No, you don't feel strongly enough because I'm getting antsy <laughs> over here getting angry about life insurance. The reason that anything other than level term life insurance is sold, stay with me here, everyone, is because... Uh-oh. Salesmen make more money off of it than are, are more more money off of whole life permanent life insurance than they do off of term because term is stripped down it is just insuring your life everything else has another aspect to it so the only drawback and you touched on this Caleb to term insurance is that it runs out at some point you've paid for this insurance for. 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 or 30 years or whatever your term was. And when the term is up with term insurance, that's how it works. You usually pay the same thing every month or every year until the term expires. When the term expires, you don't have life insurance anymore. And if you talk to an insurance salesman, that's the end of the freaking world. Like, oh no, you yeah. better, you should have had permanent, <clears throat> permanent insurance. What's going to happen to you? Well, if you talk to a financial planner, usually, unless you're trying to do some tax stuff and you're super wealthy, usually term insurance was cheaper and you were on a plan to get financially independent so that you don't need life insurance. So that life Mm -hmm. insurance is a luxury for you if you want it. Just like if you get super rich, if your net worth is $10 million and you have a $250,000 house, do you need homeowner's insurance anymore? Not necessarily, but you might buy it just so that your house is covered if it burns down. Same with life insurance. Maybe you get an extra kick to somebody that you love that passes to them tax-free, which is which is awesome. That's a great benefit of yeah. life insurance. But it's not the reason to get it when you're pursuing other financial goals. If you're not financially independent, there is no reason to pay a premium to buy insurance that does other stuff other than insure your life in case of untimely death. And with whole life insurance, it's permanent. That's the advantage that it has over term insurance. As long as you keep paying the premium. That's a very, very important disclaimer. Caleb, what happens to the premium when you're 85 years old? Are you more likely to die or are you less likely to die than you were when you were 30? Yeah, that's one of the dirty secrets. Those policies start out relatively affordable and they can say, look, here's the cost of insurance and here all that extra premium is going into this investment account. See it growing, see it working for you. The dirty secret is this, when you get older and closer to death and closer to needing that insurance, the cost of insurance, surprise, surprise, goes up dramatically. It's not a steady incline. 
if you can see me, it goes like this. And eventually it, it steepens quite drastically. And, you know, what we run across a lot of times are these old policies that someone was sold in the 70s or the 80s, and they were sold wrong for a lot of reasons. Uh, a lot of it could be that interest rate rates were much, much higher at that point in time. And, mm-hmm. you know, these salesmen would say, essentially, look, we're, we're going to assume on only 8% interest, only 8% interest. Well, we haven't seen that in a long, long time. So what we <laughs> have seen is that those policies, you know, at the beginning, they were holding their own. They were carrying a cash value and folks got used to not having to pay additional premiums. That's the other great thing about it. It's flexible. If you can't make a premium this month, no big deal. The cash value is going to carry it, right? Mm -hmm. And then you end up in your 70s or 80s when you might not be insurable anymore to do anything about it if you need to make a change. All of a sudden, that cost of insurance goes way, way up. And the next thing you know, you haven't Mm -hmm. paid premiums for 20 years and you're getting a letter from the insurance company saying, we need $6,000 or this thing goes away. You mean my permanent insurance goes yep. away? I had a, a heartbreaking experience with a prospective client. He was in his mid-80s. He came in because he wanted to get his affairs in order. He'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he said, I don't know what to do about this. My life insurance policy that I had, I got this letter basically saying I owe them $8,000 or it goes away. I've been paying into this thing for a long time. What can I do about it now? And I said, unfortunately, unless you write them a check for $8,000, you've thrown your money away. So can you throw your money away into a whole life policy or a universal life policy? Yeah, you can. You absolutely can. I would approach it this way. If you're looking at life insurance as an investment or an investment alternative, or, you know, I think a lot of times it's pitched as, well, it's life insurance primarily, but in case you don't use it, at least it's an investment that you can go back and access. There's a saying in our business called term insurance, invest the rest. You could even go out and shop whole life, universal life, whatever the life insurance guys are pitching you and go out and find a good term policy that'll give you the same death benefit. If you're really adamant on investing that, for crying out loud, take the additional premium that you would have spent in a a whole life policy and invest it. Yep. No one's going to take that away from you because the cost of insurance goes up. That's exactly, if I want to impart to our listeners a weapon uh, when talking to an insurance salesman, it's that phrase that you just said. It is that I'm going to do term insurance and invest the difference. And they, there's not a real reaction to that, except they'll say, but you won't. And this will force you to do it because you're too dumb to do it on your own. Or you're not disciplined enough to do it on your own. And you know what? Bollocks to that. You're not, you are disciplined enough. You should be if you really want to help your future. So uh, the only time you should have a whole life insurance is if you already made the mistake of buying one and you are now uninsurable. Uh, something happened. You got diagnosed with a, with a disease or something. Um, and you can't replace your insurance with term insurance because nobody will insure you because you're more likely to die. Well, in that case, keep your term insurance or your your whole policy, your universal policy, your permanent policy. But otherwise, man, I would replace yeah. if you've got a whole life policy right now and you're listening, I would replace that thing. You don't even have to do any research. Replace it with a term policy that's 10 or 12 times your income and go out and don't cancel your whole life policy until you've replaced it. Replace it with a term policy. Cash out that whole life policy. I want to tell. Uh, I'll tell a short story. My my grandparents are in their mid nineties, and mm-hmm. they have they they're so nice that said they bought life insurance from any life insurance salesman from their church that came along. <laughs> uh, ten. I guess I'll buy a ten thousand dollar policy here, ten thousand dollar policy there. Well, now they're in their mid nineties, and my grandma comes to me. I got this life policy. The death benefit is $10,000. Death benefit, everyone, is insurance speak for what you get when you die. It's the benefit you get for dying. 
Um, so that's what you get paid out. So it pays out $10,000. You won't be around to see it. <laughs> the, yeah. The cash value, which is how much of the policy you get if you just take the money out, was $10,000. The premium was $2,000. So she could continue to pay $2,000 a year to get a $10,000 death benefit and keep a $10,000 cash value in the policy. I said, Grandma, just surrender it. Because if you die, everybody's fine. It's better that you spend the money than make mm-hmm. sure somebody gets $10,000. It's $10,000 either way. Why don't you spend the money? Um, that's what happens to a permanent life insurance when you keep living. So uh, I think I think we we hammered that. It's it's If you take nothing from this debate, it's take term insurance, pick a term that is with reasonable with when you expect to be financially independent, and... Uh, invest the difference if you were if you were going to get whole life insurance. If not, there's a lot of other stuff that's more valuable that you could spend that money on that that difference between the whole life and the term policy is. Spend it on getting out of debt. Spend it on enjoying your family with vacations. That'd be a better use of it, I think. I actually, I, I recommended a client to surrender a policy just a couple of months ago to do just that, the dream vacation for her family. She didn't need it. Uh, it was a similar yeah. scenario to what your grandma uh, was dealing with. Take take your money. Go do I something fun with it. I just did it for a for a couple of forty year olds that wanted to remodel their patio. I'm like, guys, mm-hmm. you do not need this whole life policy. You have term <laughs> policies and you have term insurance through work, which is something we didn't talk about. But Caleb, what do you think about your employer offering term life insurance? If you can get it through work, do you need it? I, I think that you look at the ten to twelve times. You know, at work, generally, they're going to give you most of the what I've seen is uh, they're going to give you one time your salary that you, you don't pay anything for. But most programs that uh, or most uh, companies that offer those programs will give you an addition to pay a little bit out of your paycheck every week uh, or every two weeks, two times, three times, four times, I think up to seven times I've seen. And you don't have to do the health assessment, which is great especially if you might have a condition because it's group term insurance. Oh, yeah. You take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Really, that's that's great. Now, if you sever employment, you've got to go find insurance. So that's a great place to start, especially if you work for a big corporation or something like that. The rates are really, really good. I think that if there's a gap, then you go out and you look at, you know, uh, one of the one of the many term providers out there that's just going to give you the best, you know, the best quote, the best price for the same policy. That's where I would start. The one thing that I want to touch on before we move on to the next topic, though, the reason that people don't get rid of those old whole life policies is because they took them out when they were 20 or 30 years younger. And they're thinking, there's no way I can get the coverage that I can for what I'm paying now. That's absolutely false. Term insurance is cheaper in general, but we are living longer, right? We're living longer. Our life expectancies in general are longer. Insurance is cheaper. The industry has gotten a lot more competitive. Interest rates are lower. You'd be really surprised at 60 years old what you can get versus what you could 30 years ago. You probably will still save money. Yeah, um, actuarial tables changed uh, actually a couple times. They've changed another, a couple times. Yeah. Because we keep living longer and we're healthier. Uh, so yeah, uh, check at least check on it. If you've got a, a whole life policy, don't just go out and cancel it because Jason and Caleb said whole life insurance is stupid. Try to replace <laughs> it first. But you might be pleasantly surprised at the affordability of a term policy, yeah. even, you know, even at 50 years old or so. So if you're concerned about one of the things you brought up, uh, if you're concerned about your discipline and well, that's kind of forced discipline. It keeps me invested. It, it forces me to not spend the money and invest it. Here's the deal. Work with a good financial planner that will call you out, that will hold you responsible uh, for your goals. And you shouldn't have any trouble there. I'm going to summarize my stance on term insurance, invest the rest. 
and go from there. That's a good policy, I think. I can get behind that. I, I think with the employer, if your employer is offering you term insurance, I would treat that as bonus insurance mm-hmm. because you may get severed. Uh, what you, The last thing you want to have happen is you get life insurance through your work and you're like, this is good. This is 10 to 12 times my my income. I'm I'm feeling good. Oh, or uh, what most people are like, they're like, I have $250,000 of coverage. I feel like that's all right. Uh, you lose your job. Maybe you can't work or maybe you quit and go somewhere else. And then you find out that you've got diabetes or you have skin cancer and you can't get another term policy to replace it. Uh, you're you're hosed. You, you don't have insurance now and yeah, you're uninsurable. That's true. I would get it while you're healthy, get a nice long-term policy and rely on the policy that you have purchased. If you get it through work, like Caleb said, man, it's a lot cheaper and you don't have to pass any health screenings. That's awesome. I'd take that. And, uh, and you can, I think the first $50,000 of death benefit, whatever the premiums are for that, you don't even have to pay income tax on that. Correct. The employer's paying it for you. So that's awesome. So take that. That's a bonus. That's a good deal. Caleb, man, life insurance is the only iceberg we're going to get to today. That's, it's just no. a big iceberg. Okay. So we'll do icebergs part two. In the meantime, we have a lot of strong feelings about life insurance, and you shouldn't. There shouldn't be any cloudiness on where we stand there. So, Jason, uh, we'll we'll start to wrap this up. Then the next segment would be questions straight up. Hey, Caleb. Today's question comes from Aaron, and she asks. I'm set up to contribute $6,000 to my Roth 457 this year. So where do I go from here if I want to contribute more for retirement? That's a great question. And here's the thing. There might be a little misconception here. So first, the fact that you have a Roth 457 is awesome. For those of you out there who aren't familiar with the term Roth, but have maybe heard it, that's after-tax contributions that if done correctly, come out tax-free with the growth in retirement. These are becoming more and more popular in 401ks, 457s. They haven't always been uh, an option for for those employer-sponsored plans, not as long as Roth IRAs are. So Aaron, great job for getting set up to, to, I'll say, quote unquote, maximize your contribution. But here's the deal. $6,000 is the limit for a Roth IRA. In a Roth 457 or a Roth 401k, you don't have to follow that limit. You can go right up to the $19,500. If you're 50 or over, you can take advantage of the catch-up, which is an additional $6,500, if I'm not Mm. mistaken. That is absolutely huge. Contributions that are matched by your employer, the the match is not Roth, but that's still free tax-deferred money. So, Aaron, I think that uh, you keep plugging money into that Roth 457. Now, you could go outside of the 457, set up a Roth IRA, and put some additional there. You're not going to take advantage of the match necessarily, but see where the employer stops with the match. I would go up to the employer match, get all the free money that you can. Then you go and you max out a Roth IRA, $6,000 a year, because you have unlimited investment options in a Roth IRA. And then if you want to go back and contribute more, that's awesome. Put money back into the Roth 457 and you're going to be in great shape. That's a good question. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, it's, It's great that the IRS is allowing employer-sponsored plans to have Roth options now and that employers are taking advantage of it with a with a deferred compensation plan like that 457. Man, that's awesome. She can stuff a ton of money in in Roth IRAs, grow tax deferred, takes the, take the money out tax-free uh, when she takes it out if she follows all the rules. 
That's a great deal. I think uh, we're definitely going to do an episode about Roth IRAs. Yeah, and Roth, Roth, Roth that is an episode in itself. And retirement. Aaron, plans. you're well on your way. <laughs> yeah, that's a great start for sure. But man, we love yeah. the Roth. I we 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 love it so much. We named one of our conference rooms at the office. It's the the <laughs> William sure Roth did. conference room. <laughs> so yeah, man, that's great. Yeah, that that's awesome. Keep getting after it. Uh, so this is the part of the show when we invite our listeners to speak easy about whatever's on their mind. You see what we did there? <laughs> this is a great place to share a recipe or a story or any thoughts, questions, emotional outbursts that you might have. So Jason, did anything come into the speak easy this week? Why, yes, it did, Caleb. This week's speak easy comes from Elizabeth. She says, I recently discovered a drink recipe that my Aunt Gretchen shared with me. It's called a Scarlet O'Hara, and it's been a family favorite for generations. And here's the recipe. In a big punch bowl, pour a 750 milliliter bottle of Southern Comfort. (laughs) Add three jars of unsweetened cranberry juice. Sweeten to taste with grenadine and enjoy. You can even warm it up if you like. (laughs) Oh, Gretchen passed away this time That sounds like a group drink. Yeah, that is for a party. Gretchen passed away this time last year, and this is a fun way to remember her. Also, I'm enjoying the podcast so far. You guys are funny. That's high praise. Well, that's <laughs> that's uh, we appreciate that, and that's a cool drink. Great way to uh, remember somebody. Uh, that sounds like yeah. a good holiday drink. So uh, cool. Keep them coming, folks. Absolutely. I don't know, Jason. I think that it's time to to put this one in the book. So thanks for having a drink with us this week. It's time to close out the tab. If you want to have your story featured on the Old Fashioned Finance podcast, be sure to email us at speakeasy at oldfashionedfinance.com. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to write us a review on iTunes and share the show with someone you love or just someone who needs a little money muddling themselves. Old Fashioned Finance is brought to you by Blue Jay Financial Group. That's bluejfg.com and produced by Pottery Studios. We've been your hosts, Jason and Caleb. Cheers. Cheers. Blue Jay Financial Group, LLC, Blue Jay, is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Ohio. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The presence of this advertisement on this podcast shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction, unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by Blue Jay in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant to an applicable state exemption. All verbal and written content on this presentation is for information purposes only. Opinions expressed herein are solely those of Blue Jay, unless otherwise specifically cited. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by our firm as to other parties' informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation.